Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. I'm David Walker, and on today's podcast, we're doing something a little bit off the beaten path. We're going to talk to an author who has written a new book that is going to be released soon about Loserville. Yes, we're talking about Atlanta, Atlanta sports. This one looks really interesting. Uh, Let me get to our special guest on the podcast. He is a historian, an author, and a freelance writer. He is an editor at the SB Nation site, Down the Drive, which covers the Cincinnati Bearcats. Uh, And most importantly, he is the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Uh, I'm talking about Clayton Truder. Clayton, thanks for joining me. David, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. When you had messaged me on Twitter, I thought, okay, here we go. Uh, And then I saw what your book was about, and I thought, oh, boy. This is something that Falcons fans uh, can probably relate to. And not, it's, this is just to be clear, this is not just specific to the Falcons, but to all of the Atlanta franchises and even some that have <laughs> since left the city. Um, so why don't you give us a background on the book and, and let's start with the title. Where did the title come from? Because obviously there's probably going to be some Atlanta fans that are going to feel a little bit triggered by Loserville. Oh, certainly. It's yeah, it's not intended that way. The purpose of the title is to evoke a particular time and place in the history of Atlanta. In July 1975, Louis Grizzard, who later became a well-known Southern humorist, he was the editor of the Constitution at the time, and he did a two-part front page series called Loserville, which was essentially a synopsis of the previous 10 years of Atlanta Pro Sports. Beginning in the mid-1960s, you have the Braves, the Falcons, you have the Hawks of the NBA, and eventually the Flames of the National Hockey League came to town, come to town. And the city leaders in Atlanta, whether they were part of the political establishment or corporate establishment, put a tremendous amount of effort into making Atlanta a major league city. And things hadn't quite turned out as they expected. They figured these terms would be <laughs> these teams would be a source of prestige, they would be a source of civic unity. It would be something that would bring the city together. And it didn't quite happen that way, either on the field or at the box office. All of these teams, many of whom had management that was basically new to pro sports, struggled on the field. And the teams over time all eventually began to struggle at the box office, too, in large part because of the teams on the field struggles, but also due due to some factors specific to the Atlanta market and factors which ended up shaping a lot of other cities in the south and west which became major professional sports cities too. So in essence, my book is a story of Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports and the response by Atlanta sports fans to these teams in the 1960s, 1970s and onward. Yeah. I think it's important to note those franchises um, for fans of these teams, especially that listen to this podcast, you know, follow the Falcons. 
Um, those franchises have had more success in recent years. You know, the Braves had a string of success in the 90s where they were constantly in contention. Uh, the Hawks have had mixed levels of success throughout the years. The Falcons certainly have been far more successful, I think, um, in the Arthur Blank era than, than previous to that. Um, but Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, ownership is such a big part of any story like this. Oh, yeah. and But in that time frame, you were mentioning that the first, I guess, 10 years, let's call it the first decade of those teams in Atlanta, they were all pretty miserable franchises um, with Atlanta, you know, the Falcons sort of uh, being one of the, the worst in the NFL for an extended period of time. Um, how bad was it? And do you feel like the the history of those teams, you just mentioned it, and I want you to dive into that a little bit more, the ownership of those teams? Because I think Falcons fans in particular that go back to pre-Arthur Blank days know how important the, the ownership is. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. I'll just start with the Falcons. The Falcons owner was Rankin Smith. He owned the team through the late, I guess, early 2000s. Broadly liked, considered a very player-friendly owner, but he was just not a football guy. He was an insurance, uh, a well-to-do insurance salesman in the city. He happened to have been a fraternity brother of a guy named Carl Sanders, who was the mayor of Georgia in the mid-1960s. And as the NFL, as, as Atlanta was pursuing an NFL team, he tapped the shoulder of his fraternity brother and said, hey, Step up. This is this is your chance to help the city out. And uh, Rankin Smith rose to the occasion and spent close to nine million dollars in 1965 to secure a franchise, which was more than anybody had paid for an NFL team at the time. Um, Once Atlanta builds a stadium, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, it puts them in a position to get an NFL team. And in many ways, the Falcon struggles were shaped by having an inexperienced ownership group. Football, any of these pro sports is a very specialized business, and you can be the best insurance salesman in the world, but not really be equipped to succeed at running an NFL franchise. And unfortunately, for much of the team's early uh, history, they relied on close associates of the Smith family, people who were great at insurance, but maybe weren't experts at football, to play prominent roles in running the organization. In 1967, the Falcons had a draft where not a single guy made the team whom they selected. Oh, my word. It was an incredibly bad situation put this in context too it's the worst possible time to be an nfl expansion team um in the mid-1960s you have 400 of the best players available all playing in the afl too so the the talent pool is incredibly small the league was incredibly ungenerous in terms of its uh expansion draft you could protect all but five players on your roster so the falcons basically got guys that other people didn't want the falcons first head coach was a guy named Nora pecker who was a Lombardi assistant, and by all accounts was a very good football coach. He went on to be an assistant for Bill Walsh for many years in the 1980s, win a bunch of Super Bowl rings as an assistant with the 49ers, but his team was just overmanned. I mean, they had some very good young players, obviously, like Tommy Nobles, who became the number one pick in the draft, mm-hmm. and Claude Humphrey later on. But the Falcons just roster-wise couldn't compete with this um, rapidly expanding world of professional football, where the NFL already had a bunch of stacked teams. And the AFL was sapping a bunch of the other talents, too. Another major issue for the Falcons is getting stuck in the NFC West when they have the merger of the leagues. They have to travel more than anybody else in the league because of where they are. They're going to the West Coast all the time as a team in Atlanta. It was just an insane situation they were in, and the Falcons suffered as a result of it. Um, In many ways, the fans were very loyal initially. They sold 45,000 season tickets the first year of the franchise, which was the best anybody had ever done. But over time... Often, even though people were buying season tickets, fans were leaving at halftime when the Falcons were behind. The Falcons end up by the mid-70s leading the league in no-shows. People who've bought a ticket but don't bother to show up. 
74 oh season, nearly 40% of the Falcons tickets sold didn't end up getting used. Um, so it, 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 the situation, situation deteriorated considerably. And they, <laughs> they found themselves in a position of having a very contentious relationship with the media almost immediately. And that was largely because of the head coaches, Hecker, and then especially Norm Van Brocklin. Van Brocklin, yeah. Incredibly adversarial with the press, frequently uh, threatening uh, members of the Atlanta media or, in fact, uh, uh, choking one one time at uh, <laughs> dinner, which was meant to welcome the media to uh, to uh, <laughs> summer practice sessions. Yes, uh, we recently saw a video um, through one of the SB Nation uh, uh, sites that started with the history of the Falcons, and it talked about – uh, Norm Van Brocklin, but uh, going back yes, to your boys' documentary is fantastic. I, I enjoyed. Oh yeah, part. I regard it as a hype video for my book. Is how I think of it. <laughs> I mean, it goes in a little bit. He's a lot more statistically oriented. I'm telling more the history of the franchise, its fans, and the city more generally. But it, it's just fantastic, and I hope anybody who hasn't seen it yet enjoys it. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's. Yeah, I mean, as a Falcons fan, in spite of some of the kind of. Uh, uh, cringeworthy aspects to it. It's a very amusing story. Yeah, if you've got to get past the first five minutes as a Falcons fan, uh, and then you can sort of dive into the history. But they really start off by punching you in the mouth, which is uh, actually very indicative of Atlanta sports. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, I think there's this aura now around Atlanta sports. And, you know, like I mentioned, the whole idea of Loserville even though that was from the 70s, it's sort of a label or a moniker that's used for Atlanta sports now. You know, the Falcons, obviously, we don't have to recap 28-3. to um, And then the 98 Super Bowl against the Broncos. Uh, the Hawks have not been to a championship game. Um, the Braves, even with, uh, I think, three, what, three, four, three Cy Young uh, in future yeah. Hall of Fame pitchers in the 90s won just a single world championship in that time frame. Um, so there's this perception that, you know, the, the city is uh, <laughs> uh, just steeped in, in these franchises that, that can't win. Um, so it, do you think that that stems from this initial run uh, in the 60s, 70s? And really, I think, you know, the 70s into the 80s where there was just no winning or very inconsistent winning at best. Do you think that is sort of the historical context for even the modern perception of Atlanta not being a, a quote-unquote good sports city? Absolutely. I mean, I think it shapes the narrative through which people see things. So, so people have a confirmation bias that they see things happen decades and decades later, and it serves an existing narrative. I think that's certainly the case with Atlanta. I think one thing that certainly hurt, at least for a time, was – just everybody saw the Braves and Hawks all the time because of TBS. So mm -hmm. when those teams were struggling in the 70s and the 80s, I mean, obviously the, the Braves in 82 had their division championship. Right. But for a long time, it was the only team that everybody in the country could see before there's the broad expansion of baseball on ESPN and the NBA gets its more national packages. So you could watch those teams getting pounded every single night, uh, a baseball fans. So that, I think, helps to exaggerate that narrative, too. And – Ownership-wise, I mean, Atlanta's teams have struggled, too. I mean, Ted Turner, it took him a while to catch on in terms of running a baseball operation. I mean, initially, mm -hmm. he was relying on TBS guys to basically run both the Hawks <laughs> and the Braves. Eventually, eventually, they turned things around. And in some ways, Ted Turner is the hero of my story because he basically saves two of Atlanta's franchises for the city because they were on the way out of town. Tom Cousins, who owns the Hawks and the Flames, sells the Flames because he gets an incredibly good deal to move the team to Alberta, Canada. 
he gets $20 million for a franchise, which is the most anybody had paid by far for an NHL franchise at that time. He was looking for a, uh, a local buyer for the Hawks. He ends up with Ted Turner. They could well have moved. The Braves were talking to people in Toronto. They were talking about moving half of their games annually to the Superdome in New Orleans. So wow. the Braves were potentially going to move out of town too. So Ted Turner took it on the chin financially for a bunch of years just so he could get, I mean, in part because he's committed to the city of Atlanta, but also because it was cheap, it was cheap uh, programming for his television stations. Hmm. He in many ways kept it major league. Um, in terms of the Falcons, I mean, Rankin Smith, say what you will about their success. He ended up being very devoted to the city of Atlanta, even though his deal at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was actually a very bad deal. They were very much second class citizens uh, to the Braves at the stadium who were playing there all year. They're there for eight, nine dates a season, essentially. And they have to some of their ticket money because of the way the stadium deal was put in place. I think seven and a half percent of every ticket they sold went to the Braves. The Braves had control over their concessions for many years. So they were put in a very bad financial situation as a result of this. They had very poor office struck offices for the team within Atlanta Fulton County Stadium initially. In 1978, eventually, they move on to Suwannee. They build a, their own headquarters. And in some ways, I see that as a bit of a turning point. I mean, the team is also getting better in the late 70s. In 1978, it's the first time they make the NFL playoffs. But with, with under the leadership of Eddie LeBaron, the corner gets turned a little bit um, front office-wise. And also, once they have their own space, I think that also helps too, which to me is the beginning point of the move towards being in the Georgia Dome, which to me really begins to separate them from the early history of the franchise, that they become an organization of their own. I think they, in many ways, develop a separate identity as a result of that too. Now, you mentioned in the book, um, in the title, that Atlanta reshaped sports and uh, remade you know, professional sports. And I have a feeling that what you just mentioned with the Georgia Dome and maybe more recently with Mercedes-Benz is sort of indicative of, of that structural change for how sports and cities um, interact. Because uh, it, you mentioned Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and, and the Falcons playing there. How did Atlanta reshape uh, professional sports and, and how do our stadiums play into uh, that discussion? Atlanta invented the model for aspiring cities to become major league beforehand. There'd been individual franchises who moved here and there, obviously in baseball, there's the, the Los Angeles Dodgers and giants moving in the late fifties. That's mm-hmm. well known. There've been other franchise relocations from time to time before Atlanta but Atlanta, under Mayor Ivan Allen, who's the mayor from 1962 to 1970, made it an explicit feature of public policy to pursue the major leagues. When Ivan Allen ran for mayor in the fall of 1961, he had a platform called Forward Atlanta, which had six points to it. Some were about making progress on racial issues. Some were about development of the city in different respects in terms of highways and mass transit and other things. But one of the six planks was called Major League Atlanta. And we're going to improve the reputation, the prestige of our city, make it align with our level of economic success, our cultural position, by bringing in pro sports. And he proposed building a stadium in Atlanta to lure Major League Baseball and the NFL and proposed building an indoor arena. At the time, the idea was it would bring basketball. Eventually, hockey becomes part of the equation, too. And within a decade, Atlanta had both of these venues. So Ivan Allen, who'd been the head of the Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta, used his strong connections to the corporate community to get to get basically the entire leadership of the community behind becoming major league. So Atlanta is the first city to push for pro sports 
in the same way they would try to lure a factory from another city or a, bl- hmm. a branch plant from a corporation in the other part in another part of the country. So Atlanta, in many ways, created a, a hype a hype machine to become major league and put the public money behind it in terms of building Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and providing the financing mechanism for the Omni that many other cities have since adopted. Particularly if you look at cities in the South, cities in the West, they've adopted this model, whether it was San Diego or Tampa or Houston to some extent, or Jacksonville or Charlotte or New Orleans. They're in many ways doing just what Atlanta did in this time period. They're getting all the civic leaders to get out there pushing, saying our city needs to join the major leagues to prove that we're one of the country's important cities and we're willing to put money behind this. And this convinced the leagues to expand further. It convinced them to choose these cities as their new expansion points. Theoretically, these city, these leagues could have just picked other cities in their existing, in their existing regions in the north, in the northeast, in the Midwest as new markets. But no, they chose to expand to the south, to expand to the west in areas where Pro sports had very rarely expanded since uh, had very rarely expanded in the past. When the when the Braves and Falcons get to Atlanta, basically between Washington D.C. to the north and Dallas and Houston to the west, there's this huge open territory with no pro sports. And the Falcons and the Braves fill that void, and they become the teams for the regions as a result of this. And they have huge television markets involving seven or eight states almost immediately. So once Atlanta puts it that puts itself out there. People in the, in the different big leagues see what a fantastic potential market this is for pro sports. And um, other cities started adopting this model, too. So that's how Atlanta, um, how Atlanta changed pro sports forever, really. Three quarters of the expansions of pro sports to the south or to the west have happened since Atlanta got its major league expansion. It's not wow. explicitly because of this, but there's a strong correlation between Atlanta pushing for this and all of these cities becoming major league, too. Um, I mean, whether it's Charlotte or Jacksonville or New Orleans or Nashville, they're imitating what Atlanta did and they're succeeding (laughs) as a result of um, following this model. It's very interesting. And the we see now with modern sports, um, you know, it's almost like the the next version of that, sort of an amplified version of that, where the city that wants to lure away another franchise, they do it by you know, the promise of, you know, the integration into the city and uh, they sell it to their citizens by, you know, by saying, hey, you know, we're going to give them a tax break, but it's going to create jobs. It's going to lift the entire economy. It's going to offer us a level of prestige that, uh, you know, we don't have without these sports franchises. Um, So it's very interesting that this Atlanta in the 60s was sort of um, the, the, the bellwether for, what was to come and, and actually continuing to happen. I mean, we've seen that even recently in the NFL with, you know, teams like the Chargers uh, and the Raiders relocating to different cities um, with the promise of new stadiums and uh, lifting, quote unquote, the local economy as a, as a part of that. Um, do you feel like the, the, the trend that was started then, um, the, the fact that Atlanta actually didn't have tremendous financial success immediately. Um, but the story behind it was compelling. As you mentioned, it, 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 even if the money and the attendance and the franchises themselves were not immediately successful, that narrative, that story of what these franchises will do for your city has continued on. And it's, it's, it continues to be sort of 
this narrative that's used even today as new franchises are put together or are relocated from one city to the next? Do you feel like that narrative was the most powerful thing that was sort of birthed out of that movement and, and not so Absolutely. much the, the success of the teams? Absolutely. There was a guy named Mills Lane who was part of the, who helped head the stadium authority or one was one of the heads of the stadium authority that helped finance the, um, the pro sports franchises in their, their buildings in town. And one thing he said over and over again is the most important thing about bringing pro sports to Atlanta is that you look in the standings and you see the names, New York, Los Angeles, Boston, Chicago, and Atlanta is along them, along <laughs> with those names. It, it proves that Atlanta belongs with one of those cities because we're just part of that cluster of names of the important cities together. So there's that huge symbolic element of it, too. Another thing I don't mention is that Atlanta every shapes pro sports also in the sense that northern cities have to protect their, their own teams by financing stadiums. Hmm. So in many ways, it serves the interests of the league in terms of getting new stadiums because they have to be just as protective of their teams by offering money for stadiums in the same way that Atlanta or New Orleans or Jacksonville would. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. So what's interesting to me, though, is um, I wonder if in some ways it did ultimately end up working, because if we look at Atlanta over the past 50, 60 years uh, in the time that those franchises have come into existence and slowly and surely turned into you know, semi-respectable franchises, I don't want to go too far out on a limb, but uh, they have had some you know, recent success. Um, it, we have seen Atlanta grow from you know, sort of just a quote unquote Southern city to being a, a significant uh, player in, you know, the U S where it is not necessarily on par with the biggest cities, but if you look at sort of like that second tier of cities that are, you know, economically significant and mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, have a, a, an influence on, uh, you know, what's going on in the U S Atlanta is up there now. And in many ways, there are many industries that have come to Atlanta and, and it does seem like, you know, maybe over the long term, the, the people who brought those franchises here may have been correct. Do you, do you think that's a fair assessment? Oh, without question, they were correct. Yes. It didn't have the immediate benefits they did. My, my story is a, a cautionary tale in the sense that when you bring a pro sports team to town, your primary motivation should be that you that there are a lot of people that want to see this team. Mm. The idea that it's going to immediately change your city, it, it's not quite that simple. There's a lot of things coming together. Eventually, the story worked out well, I would say. And one thing, Atlanta, compared to a lot of communities, has gotten smarter about stadium financing relative to other places. Atlanta has done a good job getting uh, corporate title sponsorships for stadiums that have paid a significant portion of the development fee. In the, in the person of Arthur Blank, you have an owner who invested a lot of his own money in the stadium. Right. I mean, Atlanta stadiums actually used a lot less public money in recent times than, than, than in a lot of other cities. So Atlanta's leaders have certainly learned from it. Um, with the, with, uh, I mean, the new Brave Stadium in Cobb County, you have the self-taxing district, which is its own kind of separate, like, corporate entity that's paying for the stadium, as opposed to more directly being the taxpayers. So in some way, that's an evolution in and of itself, too. And in terms of the city of Atlanta, 
if you look at the situation with the Thrashers when they left, uh, Kasim Reed, who was the mayor at the time, said, the people of Atlanta are not the people who are going to the Thrashers game. These are people from the suburbs. If they want to build a stadium, if they want to pay for a stadium, fine. It doesn't make sense for the city of Atlanta to invest in this. So Atlanta has been a lot more judicious with its stadium investments in recent hmm. times. And I think also, if you look at, at the, the politics of it, uh, in terms of the city of Atlanta, both with the Georgia Dome and also with Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the city and county negotiated it in a way that ensured for the political base of, of much of Atlanta's political leadership that there was a, uh, a system in place to ensure a certain degree of uh, minority participation in terms of contracts, right. which politically made, made complete sense for uh, Atlanta's black political leadership, that they were able to, to serve the interests of their constituents. So in terms of the They've been very pragmatic about it, the, politi- the political leadership in Atlanta, particularly in the past couple of decades, in a way I think should be applauded because many other cities just bend over backwards. Please do anything. Just just give us a team. Just, you know, whatever. <laughs> Atlanta's, Atlanta's leaders have just been out there asserting their own the interests of their constituents in terms of uh, stadium projects. So I think I, I, I very much view it as a, uh, a positive story. Even if it took a while to get there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, things, things, things take time, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, things don't happen overnight. Right. And I, I think that's what I love the most about how you're approaching this book. The, the there's this significant history and even the era in which this took place in, because obviously in, in 2021, we live in an entirely different world than what America looked like in the, the 1960s and into mm-hmm. the 70s. How did that um, that version of America influence what happened in Atlanta with with these sports teams and and with the success or the non-success, if you will, over the first you know decade of those teams? How did that era of America sort of have an influence on everything that happened? Well, one thing I will say in regards to that is Atlanta's progressivism on racial issues relative to the rest of the South is the reason it became the first major league professional uh, mm. town. In large scale, other southern cities were a lot further behind on those issues. Atlanta had, from the late '40s onward, a biracial governing coalition politically, which Atlanta was making. Things weren't perfect; they still aren't. But they were certainly making steps in ways that other communities weren't by the early 1960s, um, and it put Atlanta in a position to acquire a lot of these kind of cultural amenities that, say, Birmingham or something even if they were a larger community, wouldn't have been in a position to. So Atlanta's, uh, Atlanta's positioning itself as a, as a progressive oasis in the Deep South certainly put itself in a position to benefit from the economic changes of the era, from the social changes of the era. Because in many ways, the expansion of pro sports is a product of a lot of economic changes in the country. First of all, the move of much of the nation's economy to the South and West. Second, the expansion of the interstate highway systems, the emergence of jet travel, all these things ex- enable the leagues to expand from basically a cluster of cities in the uh, north and Midwest. Uh, and Atlanta is in a perfect position to benefit from these. Yeah, I feel like that often gets overlooked uh, because now many people are sort of uh, just existing within what Atlanta is today. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, um, Atlanta was sort of uh, where, as you mentioned, southern cities are concerned. They were at the forefront in the civil rights movement in the south. You know, you have many leaders such as John Lewis that came out of uh, Georgia and were the ones pushing for that. And as we think about, uh, you know, these franchises and, and sports, I mean, that is that is sort of uh, 
the unifying point, if you will. Um, you, you, sports have always been, uh, whether people want to hear it or not, you go all the way back to Jackie Robinson. Um, it, it is where a lot of times the, the political temperature of the country uh, is is seen on the public stage, um, as with Jackie Robinson and, and you know breaking through the the barrier in, in baseball and um, even now with you know sports and as you mentioned minority ownership, um, it, it seems like sports have been at the forefront of pushing that, uh, and it seems like Atlanta, from what you're saying, was uh, one of the first Southern cities to really be at the forefront of that. Uh, Without in, question. I mean, the yeah. Braves, their first, the Atlanta Braves first game in 1965, you have a crowd, the first, because they played in, the Braves actually moved to Atlanta in 66. They play some exhibition games while they're transitioning from Milwaukee to Atlanta mm-hmm. in Atlanta first um, in 65. The first game the Braves played in Atlanta at Atlanta Stadium in front of 50,000 people is a game in which the majority of the Atlanta Braves starters were African-American players. Mm. The idea that in the Deep South in 1965, this is happening. What a remarkable story. Um, the Atlanta Hawks are the first team to have any black ownership in the major professional sports. Uh, wow. had, a, had, a, had a guy named uh, Laura Milton who owned about two percent of the team uh, when they when they moved to town. Um, the I mean, there's there's just all kinds of things where Atlanta is just ahead of the curve on all these different things. Uh, I mean, I talked to a guy named Sam Massel, who was Atlanta's mayor right after Ivan Allen, who was a major figure in bringing pro sports to town and was actually an excellent negotiator for the Omni Arena. The city got a much better deal um, in terms of the financing of that because they had a real estate lawyer as mayor who was negotiating this, understood how real estate deals work. So he's a, he's one of the heroes of my book, too. And he said to him, it was such a big deal. Just having 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 white fans, African-American fans sitting alongside each other, cheering for an Atlanta team. What a great moment in the city's history it was just to have that uh, in place, just as an in- initial thing in the city, too. There was a guy named Bob Hope, who was the PR guy for the Braves, when, when Hank Aaron uh, breaks the all-time home run record uh, in, 19, uh, in 1974. And uh, he talked about what a remarkable thing it was for him, being a guy helping to promote Hank Aaron breaking the all-time home run record to predominantly white fans in Atlanta, having grown up in Forsyth County, where when he was a child, it was illegal for African-Americans to be outside after dark. Ugh. That within that less than a generation after that, he is there promoting um, pro, uh, uh, an African-American sports hero to a predominantly white fan base. Just what a remarkable social change that was. And I think these stories can't be underestimated. You look 50 years from the past and they may not seem quite what they did at the time, but trying to look at it with the eyes of 1966 or 1975, it's incredibly remarkable what pro sports did in Atlanta socially. And that to me feels like where perhaps uh, for all of the jokes that Atlanta has rightfully earned from a sports standpoint over the years, uh, you know, with the Falcons in particular in recent years being uh, sort of the whipping, uh, the whipping boy on the whipping post for that. Um, these franchises have actually been quite uh, critical in the development of this city and in the pushing forward of race relations uh, and civil rights. They've been a part of that story in a significant way. Um, and that to me is uh, for those who are, um, you know, Atlanta natives or who call this city home, that is an incredibly powerful thing to remember and to be proud of within this history. Uh, as you mentioned that in the 60s, I think people forget there were the, the need for African-Americans to still use green books just to figure out where they could safely stay 
when traveling throughout the South was still a thing at that point in time in history. And this is, as you mentioned, we are not that far off uh, from, you know, that's what one, two generations back. Um, well, if you think about it, in 1966, the year the Braves and Falcons come to town, the state of Georgia elected an explicit segregationist and Lester Maddox as their governor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's the juxtaposition of uh, what was happening in Atlanta and what was happening writ large in the state is a remarkable story too. Wow. Yeah. And in many ways uh, is, as you mentioned, it's still not uh, perfect, but to see the progress. And, mm-hmm. and I think for people who are respectful of history, being able to look back and see where we are now and, and to see that trajectory is encouraging. Um, even if the, these sports franchises are punching us in the face at times. Um, so, yeah, yeah. In spite of all the, in spite of all the, you know, mistakes the teams have made and franchises <laughs> have had. And in terms of maybe the overestimation of the benefits of the team initially, I have, I mean, I have no connection to Atlanta whatsoever. I was looking for a city to write about that was involved with the relocation of pro sports franchises. I was interested in the impact it had on cities. I have great respect for the leadership of Atlanta in this time period. What remarkable gumption they had, what, uh, what us they had to go out and push for these things when nobody else had it, and how progressive they were in many different respects, too. Yeah, this is, um, I'm really looking forward to getting hold of your book and reading it. Um, as we close out, why don't you tell our listeners anything else about the book that they should know, uh, when it's coming out, and any other maybe uh, things we didn't get the chance to discuss that you think may be pertinent uh, for Atlanta sports fans to, to know about what you've written? Sure. My name is Clayton Truder. My book is called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's being published in early 2022 by the University of Nebraska Press, which is the nation's foremost publisher of sports history books. It's available now for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all your other well-known online um, book retailers. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Facebook. Look me up. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Clayton Truder, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. And I write for SB Nation on Down the Drive. And I thank you so much for your time and uh, appreciate the opportunity for, to talk about my book. Uh, Clayton, it's been a true, pr- true pleasure. Uh, I do look forward to getting this book when it comes out. Uh, so if you will, on Twitter, uh, message me when it's, when it's getting close and we'll, we'll promote it again as the uh, beginning of 2022 gets here. All right. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for all your help. Yeah, thank you. Um, as for me, guys, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DW. Updates for this podcast at Pod, And, of course, our articles daily at thefalcoholic.com. So for Clayton Truder, this is David Walker. Thank you guys for listening in. Talk to you next time.